The topic tonight is Clash of the Kings, and uh, if you would like to have a copy of the sermon notes, you can go to docs.jamboreeanglican.com, or you can be using the sermon notes that were handed out as you came in the front door. Well, they say, be nice to people on your way up, because you'll meet them on the way down. Uh, Politics can be brutal, can't it? It can be brutal, even by those who are normally the nicest people that you'd come across. Uh, It's rare for a political leader to make it to the top and then back down again without damaging relationships with those that he or she is or was closest to. In her book, Plots and Prayers, Nikki Sava charts the dramatic ascension of Scott Morrison to Prime Minister. She describes him as, quote, a complex mix of political cunning and religious conviction, end quote. And she speaks of the team that got him to the top as not plotting, but planning. Now, having read the book all the way through, um, it actually seemed to me that Scott Morrison appeared to maintain integrity, even in the toxic, toxic environment of Australian federal politics. And it was, as I was reading it, it reminded me again of the need for us to keep praying for all of our leaders, especially those who are Christians, because it's a brutal environment to be a follower of Jesus and compromises tempt and test our brothers and sisters on a daily basis. When kings and presidents and prime ministers sense that there's a bit of competition for their job, then, well, an automatic sense of self-preservation kicks in like a drowning swimmer pushing down their rescuer to to try and clamour for some more air. A leader facing a spill will do anything to click on to political life. And so when Herod, the brutal Roman ruler, got whiff of the birth of another king, he naturally went into survival mode. That other king was Jesus, the Messiah. Last week we read his fascinating genealogy as it traced his lineage from Abraham to David then David to the exile and then the exile to Joseph and Mary remember 14 fathers 14 more then 14 more plus a few controversial women along the way God's people needed a king but not just any king because God's people needed the true Messiah God's people needed the true Messiah They needed the true Messiah, the true Christ, the true anointed one, one who would not fail like all the other kings who were before him. And with that miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' legal parent, Joseph, was told that his fiancée, in verse 21 of chapter 1, she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This was earth-shattering news that would impact every nook and cranny of the entire universe. And yet the news seemed, at that stage, to kind of be contained to just Jesus' family, at least for now. Because today, as we have a look at Matthew chapter 2, we'll see what happens when news breaks of the birth of Jesus and how the other king, King Herod, reacts to the competition of this king of the Jews. And as we explore this, we will see just why our world needs King Jesus, not King Herod. 
and we will reflect on why so many of our world seem to side with Herod in, in his clinging for power. Our world needs King Jesus, not King Herod. Well, chapter 2 opens up with news of the birth of Jesus. Verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Bethlehem was where Jacob buried Rachel, Ruth met Boaz, and where King David was born and raised. And like the little, like the carol says, it was the little town of Bethlehem, which is about 16 kilometres south of the city of Jerusalem. We've just been told the political concept, uh, context, the geographical context. We're now told the political context. The king of the land is Herod. Uh, he became king seventy. Uh, sorry, he, he became king in forty BC, and we know about Herod that he was a brutal king. He built some amazing things, but he also taxed people heavily, and he had a habit of executing people who threatened him, including his wife and two of his sons. This psychopath did not tolerate competition which spells trouble for the birth of the Messiah. And if it was the case that the birth of Jesus was kept a little bit quiet, that didn't last very long. For we read in verse 1b and 2, that about that time some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we've come to worship him. Out of nowhere we read that wise men came from eastern lands. Now, we're not entirely sure who they were or what they were like, but these magi were people who liked magic and astrology and dreams and all that kind of stuff. We're also not told exactly where they came from, but it seems possible that they were from Babylon, which, if that's true, that's the very place where God's people were taken in exile, the very name that stands in opposition to Jerusalem, as we see in the book of Revelation. Somehow, these magic men work out that the king of the Jews has been born. These magic men discover the birth of the Messiah. Now, they probably did all their homework. They would have done some reading, maybe reading some Jewish books. But they also saw the star as it rose. People have tried hard to work out what this star was like, whether it was kind of like the Christmas cards with a really bright, shining star, or you know, like a comet or something like that. It might well be of some sort of supernatural, spectacular thing in the sky, but it's also possible that they just happened to know that a specific astrological combination was the sign that would show that the Jewish king was to be born. And if this really interests you, I could point you to some stuff that I read during the week, all sorts of theories about timing and what the star might or might not have been like. But the point is they just knew that the Jewish king was born. And it does match up with the words from Numbers chapter 24 in the Old Testament that said, a star will rise from Jacob, a scepter will emerge from Israel. But whatever the case was, these wise men from the east have correctly identified that the king of the Jews has been born. But more troubling is that they've gone into Jerusalem and they've right there, they've, they've said that they wanted to worship this new king, which would have been fine, really totally okay, if, if Jerusalem didn't have a psychopathic tyrant 
as its king. So how did that psychopathic tyrant react? Verse 3, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Why is that? It's because Herod didn't like competition. You can see why he'd be deeply disturbed. But why everybody else? Why would they care? Well, they know that this psychopathic king would go nuts. He's the guy who killed his favourite wife and he killed his sons, all out of paranoia. What's he going to do with this baby that's been spoken of as competition for his throne? See, even as Jesus was only an infant, already the rulers of the nations were divided over him. The wise men from the east, they wanted to worship the king. But the king of Judea was deeply threatened. Jesus has divided people since his birth. And nothing's changed to this day. He's the true king and anyone who doesn't agree will feel threatened, especially if you're also a king. And so Herod got together a few religious people for a little chat. Verse 4. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Where is he supposed to be born? It's a fairly innocent question, really. And to answer it, he gets in the big guns, the high priests of the Jews and all the other former high priests as well, and a whole bunch of other priests. Who better to help him brush up on his understanding of the Jewish faith? And the answer is from the Bible, which is a good thing. They read, we read in verse 5 and 6, they say that in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you. Who will be, and he will be the shepherd for my people Israel. That's the whole quote there. See, these guys wisely turned to the Bible for their answer, and the answer was simple. The answer was Bethlehem. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which is a clear word from God that the Messiah will be born in that little town. But before we follow up the main answer, which is the place name, let's have a look and see what that prophecy said. See, the top brass of Judaism, meeting with the top Roman ruler in the land, they hear this word from the word of the Lord, that the ruler will be the shepherd for Israel. And if they read on a bit more from Micah, which they might have, they would have heard this message, verse 4 and verse 5. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed for he will be highly honoured around the world and he will be the source of peace. The shepherd leader would bring peace. How good is that? Isn't that what we all long for? Peace? Peace with each other? Peace with the world? Peace with God? The answers to all the problems of the universe are found with this man. Right here. If you could focus all the power of the universe upon one place at one time, then it would be in the cradle of Bethlehem. 
the cradle 2,000 years ago. So what is Herod going to do? How is he going to respond to this accurate news from both the astrologers from Babylon Way and also the religious leaders from Jerusalem? Well, he calls another meeting, verse 7. We read that he called for a private meeting with the wise men and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Oh, sure. Yeah, really? He says, go and do a little bit more research for me. I'd be fascinated to know. And go and find the child. Because I'd love to go down and worship him along with you guys. Wouldn't that be nice? It's lovely, really, isn't it? Uh, Actually, no, it's really ridiculous. When was that ever going to happen? But note this as well. The Jewish leaders didn't go down either. Ten miles from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. Not that far, really. But the Jewish leaders couldn't be bothered. They couldn't be bothered. Not at all. It's the Gentiles. It's the representatives of the nations, from, likely from Babylon, it seems. But the Jewish leaders can't be bothered. And so King Herod sends the Gentile wise men off. And we read in verse 9 that, After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they'd seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. These non-Jewish astrologers, these stargazers, they are filled with joy when they meet Jesus. The Magi meet Jesus, and they are filled with joy. They get it. They know that it's a thing. They know that this event is a game changer. And they're filled with joy when they find their way to the king. You know, it's so much easier for us today than it was for them back then. We know for sure who the Messiah is. We've read the book. And we know for sure where to find him so that we can worship him. We don't need to track him down through all sorts of creative and cunning means. We just need to open up the book and read God's word. And that is where Jesus is, right there, present by his Holy Spirit, ready for us to worship him as king. Right here, right now. And when you find him, as most of us in this room have, and many of you, I suspect, watching tonight, When you find him, you will find joy. You'll find joy just like these Gentile pagan people, these astrologers from outside the promised land. Well, having travelled down the hill from Jerusalem, the Magi find Jesus. Verse 11. We read that they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. You see there, it must be a little bit of time after their birth because the family's moved into a house and now these foreign worshippers come and worship the child, Jesus. And they do what we do today. They brought gifts. You might think that they'd bring along some nappies and rattles, but they instead brought some extravagant and expensive gifts along. 
gifts out of their treasure chest. Did you read that? Now, some people say that these three gifts represent different aspects of Jesus' life. Gold is what you bring to a king. Frankincense is what you use in a temple to bow down to a god. And myrrh, well, that's what you use when you're going to prepare a body when it's died. Now, it does possibly fit in with all of that. I mean, we know that Jesus is king, we know Jesus is God, and we know that his death was the climax of his whole mission. But it's probably more likely that it just happens that these three things are pretty extravagant gifts, and they're extravagant gifts that the wise men were able to use as they went about their trip, paying people with gold and frankincense and myrrh. But who knows? But what is clear is that these astrologers worshipped Jesus extravagantly. But what were they going to do now, now that they have found the true king? Were they going to return back to King Herod to let him know the good news? No. Verse 12, we read that when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. God spoke to these astrologers and said to them, don't go home via Jerusalem. Don't do it. Avoid King Herod. Go a different way. Foil his plan. But God didn't stop his supernatural intervention with just that dream that he sent to the wise people. He also spoke to Joseph. We read in verse 13 that after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. He's told to take him to Egypt. He wants to take Jesus to Egypt. Hang on a second. Isn't Egypt the place of evil? Isn't that where Pharaoh did all that evil stuff and the... There was the exodus that they had to run away from and all of that. Well, that is true. But a lot of water has gone under the bridge since that time. And at this very moment, Egypt was a Roman province, but it wasn't under King Herod's control, so it's probably pretty safe. Apparently, over a million Jews lived there at that time. So it was a good, safe place for Joseph to take his wife and child and hide. But it also reminds us of a time when God's people needed to flee down to Egypt at a time of emergency. I wonder if you can remember that. It was when Jacob took his family down to Egypt to be given support by by Joseph, of all people. They were there in famine and they needed food. But the bottom line is, Joseph had to flee with his family to Egypt. He had to get down there. Why? Because Herod, powerful King Herod, wants the baby to be killed. They needed to run straight away and they needed to stay hidden in Egypt until the angel tells him. What we've got here is an emergency evacuation. It's kind of like when the RFS or the SES knock on your door in the middle of the night and say, you've got to go now. Run. Grab your grab bag. There's a flood. There's a fire or whatever it is. That's the kind of emergency that they were in. And they had to get out straight away. And so we read in verse 14 that that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. Herod, well, he was a big threat, wasn't he? So what did Joseph do? He did what the angel said. 
And so he took his family on the 120k journey from Egypt to, to Egypt from Bethlehem and he left straight away. And he kept his family down there until King Herod died. And when that happened, something was fulfilled. We see in verse 15, this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Yeah. What's that talking about? Well, it's a quote from Hosea chapter 11. What does it mean? How does Matthew 2 link up with Hosea 11? Well, it's a good question. A lot of people ask that question. Well, we see firstly here, as we will in other places, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. We're going to see this quite a few times in Matthew's gospel. So, for example, Israel was tempted in the desert for 40 bits of time. Jesus was tempted for 40 bits of time as well in the desert. There's going to be other parallels as well. And so by Jesus coming out of Egypt... It's like Israel coming out of Egypt at the Exodus. It's sort of saying, it's kind of like an Exodus, but even better. But when we look even more closely at Hosea chapter 11, we see here that the hope that the Lord, that there's a hope there that the Lord will save his people in a way that they could not even imagine. And we see this a few verses later in chapter 11, verses 10 and 11 of Hosea, where it says, For someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion. And when I roar, my people will return, trembling from the west, like a flock of birds that will come from Egypt, trembling like doves that will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again, says the Lord. See, when Matthew quotes this chapter, he's telling the readers that this moment has come. The Lord, who is the lion... Is Jesus. And as Jesus comes from Egypt to save his people, so the people will come home to God. See, Jesus will bring his people from exile as he comes home. It's a beautiful picture. This is Messiah talk. And it's all fulfilled in Joseph and Mary's child, Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus is safe from that psychopath, King Herod. But before the story continues, Matthew goes back to fill in an important but tragic detail. For we read in verse 16 that Herod was furious when he realised that the wise men had outwitted him. So he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Obviously, the angel was right to evacuate Jesus' family from Bethlehem. And it's tragically confirmed when they see the brutal actions of Herod. At the time, Bethlehem would have been just a, a tiny little village. But even so, every boy aged two years and under were put to death. The commentator I read reckons probably around 10 or so boys were put to, put to death. But can you imagine if it was a village the size of Jamboree and all the boys, two and under, were put to death? We see that Herod really did believe the wise men and he really did see that this baby boy was a genuine threat. 
Herod never met Jesus, but he knew that Jesus was a threat. And that's because he knew Jesus was king. But his response wasn't to worship him, it was to wipe him out. Herod wanted to wipe out Jesus, not worship him. And his evil brought sadness and hardship to all the people of Bethlehem, which is also a fulfilment of scripture, verses 17 and 18. We read that Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. And it's tragic. Right here we get a quote from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah about Rachel crying over dead children. What's it talking about? Well, it's a tragic verse, but the connection is that we know that Rachel was buried in or near Bethlehem. And so it's almost as though she's crying out for her children, her her descendants, her descendants many, many generations later. And the quote from there from, from Jeremiah is probably from when God's people were sent into exile. And Ramah was where all the people were gathered together before being sent off with many tears. It is a quote of, of sadness, of despair, of grief, of hopelessness. But even with this tragic situation and this heartbreaking quote from the Bible, there is hope. Because here's what the next verse says in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 16. But... Now, this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. We see here that there is hope after the death of the infants. There is hope now. Hope for God's people of the exile. Hope that is being realised after one more tragedy of the death of infants. Because as Jesus comes from Egypt, so will hope be realised as he gathers his people from the ends of the earth in a new land under his rule. It's really interesting to explore the way that Matthew uses the Old Testament and the way that he shows the fulfilment of so many things in Jesus. And this idea of the Messiah bringing an end to the exile is really important in his theology. And it's crucial to the whole way that we see the hope of the gospel. But anyway, after that, after Herod's act of butchery in Bethlehem, the story continues, verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. The threat to God's Messiah is now over, at least for now. And Joseph's told to bring his wife and child back to Israel, which he now does. Verse 21. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But even though he was probably headed off to Bethlehem, back home, that's where home was for them, He decided to go somewhere else, verse 22. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. 
It turns out that King Herod, the evil one, he's got a son. And his son is now the guy who's ruling Judah, Judea. But something's happened. There's a bit of a cabinet reshuffle. And so there's a different king down the south than there is in the north. And so what they think is, I know, it'll be safer if I don't bring my family down to the bottom bit, but that I take them up to the northern bit. And so in our final verse for the night, we read that the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. So it turns out that the Messiah would grow up in Nazareth. Now, interestingly, if you go and search through the Old Testament and try and find the word Nazareth, you won't find it there. Which means that this fulfilment is a little bit cryptic. How does it fulfill the prophets by Jesus being called a Nazarene? Well, one nerdy option is that it connects up with Isaiah 11, where the word Neza, in the Hebrew, means branch, like in Isaiah 11, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. That's possible. But more likely, the place Nazareth stands for nowheresville. Nazareth, I'm afraid to say, was an absolute dump. It was a hole of a place. As Nathaniel famously said in John 1, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus grew up in the absolute armpit of God's country. And that fulfilled what Messiah was going to be like. He was a nobody living in Nowheresville. As was foretold in the the famous servant song of Isaiah, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Not only was he born in a manger, he grew up in a hole. Now I've been to Nazareth and it's actually quite a nice place now. But back then, it was the last place in the world that a king would grow up in. But that tells us so much about the Messiah, the true Messiah. It tells us about the one who is the king of the universe. And as the chapter ends, we see that Jesus is alive and Herod's dead. Herod knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the king that the Jews were looking forward to, but instead of worshipping the Messiah, he tried to kill him. But the Lord didn't let it happen. There was a clash of kings, of course, but the powerful, mighty, ambitious psychopathic King Herod, he is now remembered as the guy who tried to kill Jesus. That is his legacy. He is the man who murdered the babies of Bethlehem and tried to murder our saviour. What's he famous for? Trying to murder the Messiah. That has been his legacy for thousands of years. But baby Jesus didn't die with the baby boys of Bethlehem. He grew up in Nothingsville, Nazareth, from where he started to teach people about the kingdom of God. And from where he started to tell them what it meant for him to be the king of the Jews and the saviour of the world. Jesus would be eventually killed by Roman soldiers, but, but that was for a purpose. The purpose was that 
it would bring a solution to the consequences of sin. And that is why we needed our Messiah. And that is what we needed the Messiah to do more than anything else. Because unlike King Herod, unlike King Herod, Jesus is now alive. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, having dealt with our sins. The kings clashed, but Jesus won. Amen to that. Let me pray.